Hey, so you just had a chance to hear the passage of Scripture that we're going to be in. And so if you have a Bible, your phone, however you read God's Word, love for you to get that, lay that in your lap. You probably want to give a piece of paper or something to take some notes with, your iPad. Uh, and I just want to start us with a word of prayer. Can we do that? Uh, I'm so glad you're joining us today, but uh, God's here with us as well. And so let's just recognize that. Father, you are a sovereign God. You're near, you're good, and you're full of grace. So I want to say thank you for pursuing us relentlessly with an extravagant grace. Thank you that today we don't have to carry our guilt because of your grace found in Jesus Christ. Thank you that today we don't have to worry about tomorrow because you hold tomorrow in your hand. And thank you that today we can trust your good work in our lives, even if it doesn't make total sense to us today. So God, we desire, my friends watching, desire to hear from you. Search us, O oh God, and know our hearts. Test us and know our anxious thoughts. See if there's offensive way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Last week started a brand new conversation, so if you didn't get a chance to check that out, weren't able to come be a part of uh, what's going on here, love for you to do that. I would say this at the outset, if you don't have a church home, we'd love for you to come hang out with us here, 8 o'clock, 9.30, 11 o'clock. We also have 5.30 service. Love for you to come to one of those services, kids programs. But this conversation we started here and then online last week was all out of Philippians 4, which you just heard read. And Paul, we said this, had the audacity to say, don't be anxious, what? About anything. And we said this last week, that we live in a world that seems to be anxious about everything. And Paul says, don't be anxious about anything. And beyond living in a world where we seem to be anxious about everything, we live in a country we rank at the top, depending on the study, one or two most anxious countries in the world. Like we're one of the most powerful, richest countries in the world, and yet we're the most stressed out, worry-filled country. And then we said this, that if we're really, really honest, if we're really honest, you and I can be anxious about a lot of things. Here's why that's important. This, the world that we live in needs this series. <laughs> Our country, Lord knows, could use this series. What I know about you, and I've heard from many of you, I've done this third, about 30 years, I don't know if I've ever gotten the amount of feedback that I've gotten from last week's sermon. I've heard from many of you, and it's evident that you need this series. And I told you last week that I'm in this series. Like, I'm walking this. Uh, anxiety in our lives is a real thing, and it shows up in many ways. Paralyzing depression, some of you are facing that. Uh, but it also is the root to polarizing anger, and some of you are facing that or living with someone facing that, or we're in a country where that's evident. Uh, perpetual worry, you just worry about everything. Uh, for others of you, it's physical problems, like literally anxiety can show up in physical problems. And what we said last week is that fear and anxiety are different. Like fear sees a threat and either fights or it flees. But, but anxiety imagines one, and so it asks the question, what if? Uh, what if this happens? What if that doesn't happen? And so we said that anxiety actually does a good job of lying to me because it, the more, it tells me the more I worry or the more anxious I am, the more things might change, and they won't. Jesus told us that, Matthew 6. Uh, it also steals energy and time and passion and creativity from me, and it's at the root of a lot of other sins. So that's why we're going to wage war on worry. And so this series is inspired by a book that I read during my own journey 
in the last several months, a book by Max Lucado called Anxious for Nothing. I have it here with me. And many of you have told me you've gone out and purchased it. And it contains, or the whole book revolves around the most underlined verses in the Bible according to Kindle. And they are verses six and seven of our passage. Don't be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And here it is, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This ought to be an easy sermon. Just go do that. Don't worry about anything. And the peace of God, right, will guard your hearts. Like, just go do that. (laughs) If it was only that easy, right? Uh, What's interesting is when you read this, you realize when he says, don't be anxious, like this part of the Bible is written in Greek and that Greek word literally uh, is a Greek word that means don't be divided in your mind and in your spirit. Don't go to pieces, be pulled apart, distracted. Um, When you and I worry, we can't think straight because our mind is pulled in many different directions. Uh, There was a story where Jesus showed up to some of his friend's house. Some of you know the story in Luke 10. And there's two sisters, Mary and Martha, right? And Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus, just drinking in everything he's saying. And Martha's running around and she's pulled in all many directions, uh, preparing things. And what Jesus says to Martha, she's like, man, I don't like this. And he says, but Martha was distracted, right? By all the preparations that she had made. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, don't you care, right? That my sisters left me to do all the work by myself. You ever feel that way? You have siblings, right? You're like, tell her to help me. He says, Martha, Martha, you are, and he uses the same Greek word, you're anxious, worried, and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what's better, and it will be not taken away from her. Martha was pulled apart and distracted by a lot of things. And she was missing the most important thing. That's what Jesus is trying to tell her. Like our minds can pull us in many directions that we miss the most important thing. Worry pulls us apart. It distracts us. It causes us not to be able to think straight. It troubles our spirit. The question is, is your heart troubled? Is your mind pulled apart by many things when it comes to anxiety? In his book, uh, Max Lucado asks some questions to help you uh, self-assess. Is your heart divided and worried? Now, just answer some of these. Not out loud. I don't know where you're watching this. But he asks this, are you laughing less than you once did? Do you see problems in every promise? Um, Would those who know you best describe you as increasingly negative and critical? That's interesting. Uh, Do you assume something bad is going to happen? Do you dilute and downplay good news with doses of your own version of reality that aren't as good? Are there some days you'd rather stay in bed than get up? Just be honest. Uh, Do you magnify the negative and dismiss the positive? Given the chance, would you avoid any interaction with humanity for the rest of your life? He says this, he says, I don't want you to be anxious about anything. (laughs) Now, what's interesting is that word means distracted, pulled apart. It's a verb, okay? He says, I don't want you to be anxious. And the verb is this, don't be anxious. It's in the present active tense here you're like dan is this english or is this a sermon this is important and here's why all you english teachers out there you're welcome because here's what he's saying in the present active tense don't let anything in life leave you in a perpetual state of anxiety 
In his book, he makes this quote. I just love this. He says, the presence of anxiety is unavoidable. There's things that happen, right? But the prison of anxiety is optional. I ended that way last week with you. Now, some of us are living in a prison of anxiety. We cannot find the key to get out. And I think the reason we can't find the key to get out is because the most underlined verses are verses six and seven. And you got to read the verses around them to get the key to understand the peace of God. You got to read what's around it. And therein is the key. And here's how he starts. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. That is a present imperative. Rejoice. It's a command. He's saying, I want you to continually, habitually rejoice. And I and there's no expiration date in. Always. There's no exclusion clause. If things are okay. He says, I want to continually be joying, literally joying in the Lord, rejoicing in the Lord always. And in case you didn't get it the first time, I'm going to say it again, rejoice. And then he says, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. The key to enjoying and experiencing the peace of God is to rejoice in the God of peace. In the Lord always. He's not saying what our world would say, don't worry, just what? You know the song, don't worry, you know, just be happy, right? It's not what he's saying. It's not some superficial fairy tale. But what he is saying is keep joying in the root and the sources in the Lord. For our sake today, we're going to begin our acronym, CALM. Today, I just want to look at this. We're going to celebrate God always. The substitute for your worry is worship. Uh, the alternative for your anxiety about your situation is your adoration of your Savior. For some of you, worry, worry is the thing that's choking the, 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 it's literally choking peace out of your life. For some of you, you just think you can't get away from it. It's just choking peace from your life. Here's why. Worry makes good things in our life the ultimate thing. So we worry that if this doesn't happen or if I can't have this or if I don't experience this, then I won't be able to experience life at its fullest. And what worry does, you ought to write this down somewhere, worry exposes my idols. Worship recognizes God as the ultimate thing. Worship exalts God. Worry's focused on my problems or potential problems. What if? Worship celebrates God and his power and his promises. Worry is afraid of what could happen or what I might lose. Worship celebrates what I have in God and what will happen because that's what he promised. Anxiety and worry react to what might have happened to us. Worship responds to all that God is, God says, and God does. Worry is self-focused. Worship is God-focused. And you know why that's important? Now listen, this is so key. This old author wrote a book, The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer, and he says this, whatever comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. You ought to write that down. Just, just pause this. Whatever comes into your mind when you think about God. This, this book is a, I read it several times. I'm going to reread it again. I've been rereading it. And he says this, beyond this quote, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most pretentious fact about any of us it's not what at any given time may say you may say or do, but what he in his deep heart thinks God is like. What do you think God's like? 
Uh, he goes on to say this, the decline of the knowledge of the holy or God has brought us trouble. A rediscovery of the majesty of God will go a long way toward curing them. I wonder to myself, guys, is it possible that this is the heart of our epidemic in our country with worry and anxiety? Is it possible that we here in America and in the American church have gotten so distracted with other things, other things have gotten so big in our life, and I would even say become idols in our life, we're giving our passion, our energy, our enthusiasm, our creativity to them, and God has become small. Studies show that most people think God looks like them, thinks like them, votes like them, and sees the world like them. And these studies show that we have reduced the God in whose image we've been made, we've reduced him into a God who's been remade in our image. It's in the middle of that that he says, I want you to rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Celebrate God always. What are we gonna celebrate? I want you to write four things down today. Celebrate a big God who's ultimately in control of everything instead of me. We're going to celebrate God always, and we're going to get him in his right space. He is bigger than we imagined, and he's in control. Our anxiety is directly tied to our view of God, and if we have a low or small view of God, it will increase our anxiety. Uh, here's, here's how it works. Anxiety exaggerates our potential problems, and it diminishes the power of God. Whereas worship magnifies the power of God, and puts into perspective our problems. Uh, worship and worry are like binoculars. You ever use a pair of binoculars? Like binoculars have a big side, big lens, and a small lens. And so if you turn the big lens out here, it makes everything out there bigger. But, but if you flip those babies around and you have the small lens out here, everything's smaller. And what happens, many of us go through life with the binoculars pointing the wrong way. Now, let me show you what I mean. For a lot of us, we put the small end towards God and we make God small. We think about him less. He's not as big as the Bible teaches. And what we do is we put the big end towards our problems and me. It's worry because that is self-focused. So our problems are bigger, exaggerated. Uh, I, I'm more focused on me and God becomes smaller. And all through the Bible, God is constantly with his people. And I would say with us today, saying flip those babies around, I want you to turn the binoculars upside down. All through the Bible, there's illustrations of this. You remember when he came to Moses and said, I got a job for you to do. I want you to go back to Pharaoh. Do you remember that? Like, like he's out shepherding sheep and all of a sudden a bush is burning. You remember? And he's like, and they're like, what do you want, Lord? And God's like, I want you to go back and talk to the most powerful guy in Egypt, Pharaoh, the place you just fled. And you remember, uh, Moses says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Like he had the binoculars flipped. And God said, let me flip them. I'll be with you. Moses flipped him back. He says, well, I don't know what I'm going to say. God flipped him. He said, I'll send you. I'll tell you what to say. Moses flipped him and says, what if, what if they don't believe me? God flipped him. He says, watch what I can do. And he said, give me that stick in your hand and throw it on the ground. And he did some miraculous things. Like, like he keeps flipping the monoculars all through scripture with Abraham, with Gideon, Jeremiah, David, all through scripture. You see God flipping this because we tend to live this way. God's like, no, what if you magnify me? This is worship. And it's gonna put those in perspective. 
16th century reformer Martin Luther was getting at this when he made an accusation of Erasmus. Here's what he said. He said, your thoughts of God are too human. I believe that's some of our problems today. I I came across this thing. Uh, We like to get cute with God. We like to reduce God to a quaint little saying. This cute, you can put it on a bumper sticker, feel kind of all warm and fuzzy about it. I found this. Maybe you've seen this. Uh, What is God like? Uh, God's like Coca-Cola. He's the real thing. God's like Pan Am. He makes the going great. God is like General Electric. He lights your path. God is like Bear Aspirin. He works wonders. God is like Hallmark cards. He cared enough to send the very best. God is like Tide. He gets the stain out that others leave behind. <laughs> like what? Uh, God is like Dial Soap. Aren't you glad you know him? Don't you wish everybody did? God is like Sears. They're not even in business anymore. <laughs> he has everything. God is like Alka-Seltzer. Oh, what a relief he is. Uh, God is like scotch tape. You can't see him, but you know he's there. God's like McDonald's. He'll do it all for you. God's like the American Express card. Don't leave home without him. It's like, like, what? God's like Sears. Like Sears is out of business. God's not out of business. God is not like, it's not like any of these. I think what he's saying is much of our anxiety is because we have this two small view of God, we want, want to make him a cute little, he's like this. He's like Tylenol, he's pain relief. Like, he's not like any of that. Like, he's God. And, and we many times need to be reminded that God is much bigger than we thought. And that's what God did in the book of Isaiah. He's like, who are you going to compare me to? Uh, who's my equal? Lift up your eyes, look to the heavens, do that tonight. Look, I'm serious, go do that. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name, the galaxies, the stars, and they're, they're even identical. There's more than we thought. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Like, like they're complaining, like, I don't know. Maybe my problems are big, my anxieties. Their binoculars were turned the wrong way. And then God says this. He says, do you not know? Have you not heard? He turns the binoculars. The Lord is the everlasting God. He starts by saying the Lord's the, that God is big, that he has a perspective I do not have. He has an everlasting perspective that he sees the beginning from the end. He says he's the creator of the ends of the earth, that he made everything, he spoke and creation happened, that God is big, that he's powerful, that he's mighty, that there's nothing too hard for him. That earlier in Isaiah it says, he measures the waters in the hollow of his hands. With the breath of his hand, he marks off the heavens. It's like, that's a big God. He, he holds the dust of the earth in a basket and he weighs the mountains on scales. Like He does weightlifting with the Appalachians and the Rockies and the Himalayas. Like, like He is bigger than you thought. He's not just a little bigger. He's not like Coca-Cola. He's not like Sears. He is like nothing he can be compared to. He's God. He has a perspective that we don't have. Nothing is impossible for him. And then it says, he'll not grow tired or weary. He doesn't get tired. He's not worn out. His understanding no one can fathom. God is big and nothing is beyond his understanding. You ever meet somebody who knew a little bit of something about everything? I I used to hate to play my mom in Trivial Pursuit. Remember that game? I don't know. Maybe some people still play it. She'd always want to play. 
I hate, I'm like, oh, mom, please. I mean, she would crush me. She knew a little bit about everything. God knows everything about everything. Just write that down somewhere. That's what he's saying. His understanding, no one can fathom. Like he knows everything about everything. Which leads him to say this. He says, he gives strength to the weary. It's that God, big God, who increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary. Young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord, that word is wait on the Lord, will renew their strength. They'll soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. Here's what he did in Isaiah 40. Do you ever play this game, King of the Mountain? God just played King of the Mountain with us, and guess what? He's King of the Mountain. And the one on top of the mountain is the one who is and the only one who is ultimately in control, which is important because much of our anxiety increases when we perceive that we're out of control. Uh, Lucato says this, and Max Lucato says this in his book, the most stressed out, anxious people are control freaks. Am I talking to any control freaks today? You be honest. It, in fact, we're better off if we're just honest. Like, we can be control freaks, right? We like things the way we like them. Yeah. And what happens when we perceive that we're out of control, control freak, what they do is they try to get peace in their life by controlling everything. And you can't control everything. You won't control everything. The more you try to control everything, the more anxious you'll become. There are some things you should control and you do control, but you don't control as much as you think you do. Which is why I think he's saying this because God, here's the word, write this down somewhere, God is sovereign. It's what the prophet Jeremiah says, ah, oh, sovereign Lord. You've made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. That means that he is ultimately the ruler of all. He is ultimately in control. And you know what that means? I am not. That I am not ultimately in control. I heard this story uh, by a guy whose name is Skip Heitzig. Uh, he was teaching the Bible and t teaching a particular passage, and he talked about George, who was a busy executive in Pittsburgh. He had a high-stress job. It was very normal for George to work 75, 80 hours a week. He was type A, uh, always on the run, adrenaline junkie, and one day had a heart attack. So the doctor said to him, uh, George, I'm going to just be real honest with you. I'm only able to give you one year to live. I can only promise you you're going to live one year. He says, uh, if you keep this pace up and this, the, the way your schedule is, this level of stress, it's going to catch up with you and it's going to kill you. Well, as you can imagine, when the, when the doctor's talking to you after you've had a heart attack, George, at this point in time, he's listening differently. It, it sounds way different after a heart attack. So he goes home and he begins to recoup. And George went out on his back porch and he got a pad of paper and a pen and he wrote a letter. And he wrote a letter to God. And the letter started this way. Dear God, I resign as general manager of the universe. Signed, George. He told his friends later, he said, and I quote, wonder of wonders, God accepted my resignation. By the way, He'll accept yours as well. You see, 
you want the peace of God, I'm gonna rejoice in that Lord, this big God who's ultimately in control of everything. I'm gonna stake my faith, my worship, my hope in him. But look at what's next. He says, let your gentleness be evident to all. Say this with me out loud, everybody together. The Lord is what? Say it. The Lord is near. He's saying, relax, the big God that is ultimately in control is near. Uh, we're going to celebrate God always. We're going to celebrate a near God who intimately cares about me. I want to flesh this out just for a minute. It's the presence of God, not the absence of storms that brings peace and calm. It's the presence of God, not the absence of storms. Sometimes that's what I think. I think, man, if I could just have a little calm in my life, if, if the trouble and the, the, the things that bring anxiety would leave, the circumstances, the people would get out of my life, then I would have peace. And I think when you read about the peace of God, that's not what peace is, but it's the peace of God in the middle of the storms. By the way, Paul is writing this in jail. He says, the peace of God will guard your hearts, and he's penning this in jail. It reminds me of the story of Jesus on the boat and the storm and the disciples are anxious, distracted, worried, troubled. Jesus is downstairs sleeping. And they're like, Jesus, wake up. Don't you care? You know, kind of like Martha did. And he's like, don't you guys realize? Are you of faith? And he spoke. Like the one who could calm the winds and the waves was literally so near. The point is this, the big God who's ultimately in control is here in this moment. He's in the boat, and with some of you, that boat is enduring some pretty turbulent storm. And if I read my Bible right, that big God is near, and he's not just near, he cares about you. I love this particular verse. I don't know if I've ever seen how God, how Peter combines the two things in one verse till recently. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under this big God's mighty hand. That's the response. I'm not God. Humility starts there. I'm not God. Quit trying to be God. That he may lift you up. He's the one who lifts me up. I spend a lot of time trying to lift myself up. Now he lifts me up. But that big God, mighty hand, who can lift me up, realizes that there's going to be anxiety that's going to show up. And he's like, hey, quit carrying that anxiety, but cast it on him. Why? This is so important. We, we sometimes stop there, cast your care on him. No, why? Because that big God who's ultimately in control, he's near and he cares for you. His bigness does not diminish his nearness, nor does his nearness reduce his bigness. You ever thought in the last, uh, the last two presidents before President Biden uh, have had children in the White House? And it's made me think this. So uh, I think there's Sasha and Malia, uh, we're just uh, young, elementary school age when they moved in. Uh, I think Barron Trump was like 11 when, when he moved in. So the Obama administration and the Trump administration. And I often think, what would it be like to grow up as a kid in the White House and your dad's the president? Like, you ever think about that? Just, just think about that for a minute. Hey, Dad, uh, after you get off the phone with the president of Russia, you think we could play catch? <laughs> I, mean, I don't know. Like, hey, Dad, when you get back from visiting the Queen of England, which, by the way, that news this week, right? Um, but when you get back, uh, do you think there's any chance you could help me with my algebra? <laughs> like, like, I mean, I don't know how it all plays out. And I'm sure those men did it uh, differently than each other and imperfectly, you know, all those things. But God does it perfectly. 
We have a, a father who does it perfectly. And if I'm reading this passage right, here's the deal, that God is all-powerful and yet very personal. That God is almighty and he is accessible, he's available. That God is capable and there's nothing too hard for him and he's caring. There's nothing too small for him. That God is authoritative and yet he's very attentive. That God is infinite, there's no beginning, no end, and yet he's intimate in the moment. You see, if you want to understand God, you have to walk a tightrope. I often think about those guys that walk a tightrope across the parts of the Grand Canyon, which I would never do, scared of heights, right? And I'm not sure what would motivate somebody to do that, but for them to get the view that they want, you want to be out in the middle of the Grand Canyon. The only way that's going to happen is that you have the proper tension on the line, right? It has to be anchored on this side and this side. If it's only anchored on this side and not anchored on this side, you're going to fall. If it's only anchored here, not here, you're going to fall. The same thing's true with your view of God. Can I show you this picture? You ought to just stop it and write this down, that God is big. The big word for that is he is transcendent, that he is holy, he's sovereign, he's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, and so for many of us, like we're all about the big God, but we've somehow lost sight of that he's near. And that's his eminence. And those things got to stand in equal tension, not one a little more than the other, because he is at the same time equally big and equally near. He is at the same time transcendent and eminent. If I only focus on his bigness and neglect his nearness, I'm going to have a distant, uninvolved God, an impersonal, maybe critical, stoic God. He's simply going to be a religious icon in my mind. The flip side is this. If I just focus on his nearness and forfeit his bigness, I'm going to have this disrespected God. He's going to be anemic and he's going to be weak in my mind, kind of like a big grandpa in the sky. His heavenly dude, what's up? It's going to be sappy and shallow. He's going to be like my best friend, only a little better. When God is big. He's not just my best friend, a little better. He's holy. There's no one quite like God. He's near. <laughs> so I can celebrate a big God. He's ultimately in control. I can celebrate a near God who intimately cares about me. Some of you are in that boat right now and God is there. And peace and calm in your life is not going to be the absence of the storm. Trust me. As somebody who has gone through and maybe is still in parts of that storm, uh, that's not where peace and calm is going to be. I think that's why some of us are so disappointed. Like, I just want the storm to stop. And I think God's in the boat saying, now I want you to recognize the God of peace that's with you. I'm big, and yet I'm here, and I care about you. So we're going to celebrate a near God who intimately cares about me, but you know there's something else. I want you to write this down. I celebrate a good God who is actively working his purpose for my good. God is good all the time. Say that out loud with me. God is good. I know. God is good all the time. Probably feels weird to do that when we do this online, right? God is good all the time. All that God created, he called good. Why? He's a good God. James says that every good and perfect gift comes from God. Psalm 100, verse 5, the Lord is good. His love endures forever. Psalm 119 says his goodness extends to all he does. Psalm 34 says, taste and see the Lord is, do you know what it says? The Lord is Good. When we rejoice in the Lord, we rejoice in a good Lord, a good God. Goodness is the absence of evil, and evil the absence of goodness. And because he is good, he abhors evil and sin, which makes the story of God found in Jesus, what? 
good news. That's the gospel. And here's the deal. God is good all the time. Anxiety rears up when I doubt God's goodness. And here's what happens. You're like me. Come on. Let's just be real. I can doubt God's goodness when I'm going through something don't feel good. Say it again. Anxiety rears up in my life when I make God something, when I begin to doubt his goodness. And, and when I struggle the most with that, and I know I'm like you and you're like me, is when things are happening in my life that don't feel good or seem good to me. The rest of that saying, it traditionally is this, God is good all the time and all the what? Do you know it? All the time, God is good. And, and for some, it's like, ah, I'm going through something that's not very, doesn't feel good. I can't see any good. How in the world can God be good all the time? Because the time I'm going through doesn't feel good. And yet God is good and he is at work. Do you remember the story in the book of Genesis? If you've never read it, you ought to read it. It begins, uh, there's this young man, he's hated by his brothers because his dad showed favoritism and he had this special code. His name was Joseph. And so they sold him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt and nothing goes well for him. Nothing goes great for him. And he gets sold into to slavery in Egypt as a teenager. And he literally spends years in jail and he's trying, he's just like forgotten and nothing's good. He's betrayed. He doesn't see his family. And God gave him this gift, this ability in, in, in prison to interpret dreams. And he interprets some guy's dreams and came true the way that, you know, they that God had told him it would. And so what happens is, Pharaoh finds out he has a dream and he's like, go call this guy. I want to hear the interpretation. And Joseph gives from God. He says, this is not me giving, it's God giving it to you, Pharaoh. And so Pharaoh makes him the second, second in command in Egypt. So he goes from being this little teenage boy who's uh, thrown in a pit by his brothers and sold into slavery to being the second in command, second most powerful man in Egypt, second most powerful man at that time probably in the world. And if you remember the story, famine breaks out. And eventually Joseph's father and brothers need to get help from Egypt. And before you know it, and you read the story, it's fascinating. They find themselves in front of Joseph. They don't recognize him. He recognizes them. And the moment they recognize or he tells them that he's Joseph, the one that they, years later, I think it's like 13 years have passed or something like that, 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 that I'm that guy that you threw in the pit. I'm that guy. You took my coat. I'm that guy. You told dad I was dead. I'm that guy you forgot about. And now you're standing. You need help from me. <laughs> They're afraid as you can imagine. What's he going to do? How's he going to respond? Is he going to take, take it out on us? And do you remember what Joseph said? He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for what? There it is, good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Uh, many of you know the passage in Romans 8 that says this, and it's, sometimes we discount it because like, ah, I don't want to hear it, but we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. He's working something good to accomplish his purpose. That big God, that near God is a good God who's working even when we don't get it, can't feel it, don't understand it. 
It's like watching, you ever watch a, a, a painter paint a masterpiece on a canvas? I, I know when I watch these guys, like they start painting it, it looks like a mess. If you leave then, you're like, I don't know, he's not a very good painter. Because he's making an absolute mess. There's lines and there's colors and he's just slapping stuff around. But if you stay to the end, you're like, oh my goodness, that mess became a masterpiece. Why? Because he was working on it the whole time. You tracking with me? Like his faithfulness in the past, his promises in the future are what caused me to say, I want to stay engaged in the moment because this canvas that feels messy, this canvas doesn't look great, don't understand it, can't see the picture. The, the master is creating a masterpiece. You may be asking yourself, you know, like, what happens if God is a good God, then he, why doesn't he do what I ask? I mean, I've asked this myself, you know, if he's such a good God, and like, I'm in this pain, and I'm like, why doesn't he do what I ask? Uh, this quote and by Tim Keller, you ought to write this down somewhere. He says this, he says, God's only going to give you what you would have asked if you knew everything he knows. I love that. And I need that. And sometimes I go back to that. I'm like, okay, God, will you please do this? Nothing, nothing. No, no. I'm like, I don't know if you're good. No, no. It's a good God giving me what I would have asked for if I was as big as him in my perspective, if I knew what he knew, if I was as big as him in my wisdom. And I'm not. So I'm going to celebrate this big God. I'm going to celebrate this near God. I'm going to celebrate this good God. But here's where we end, and we got to end today. Do you know what steals calm from many of you? I don't know all your stories. I might know some of your stories. But for a lot of people that I meet with and talk to and run into, it's guilt, it's regret, and it's shame. Lucado in his book says that guilt sucks the life out of our soul. I think he's right. Some of you watching this have unresolved regret, lingering guilt. Your shame follows you just like a shadow you can't shake. And, and what happens with a lot of us in our guilt, uh, I share this all the time in funerals and different settings. Uh, all of us are guilty, by the way. We all think we're guilty. We're sinners, the Bible says. So guilt's something we all struggle with. Some of us, we just compound it. Uh, eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Let's go in, I'm already guilty. Some of us compound it by burying it. But if we bury it, it always comes back with vengeance. Some of us, by punishing ourselves over it, like I'm just gonna beat myself up. And so the more we stare at it, the bigger it gets. Uh, some of us compound it by taking it out on others. Some of us have become angry because of the guilt we feel. And so now we're bitter and angry. Um, maybe for some of us that it, we, we compound it by embracing it as our identity. This is who I am. Uh, but, but a lot of us, we don't compound it necessarily, we cover it. Uh, maybe we cover it by minimizing it, numbing it, drinking it away, uh, deflecting, blaming others. Uh, interesting enough, some of us cover it by becoming religious and moral. But I always say this, whether you compound it or cover it, you still carry it. And I think the point is this, that the biggest care you will ever cast onto God, the God who cares for you, is the care of your guilt. That's the gospel. That Jesus came and died for all the things that you and I are guilty of that make us guilty, that he died. The only one who was innocent died as somebody who was guilty so that all of us who are guilty could be declared innocent. And he's waiting for you. The problem is some of us, we keep going back and picking up that baggage of guilt and shame. 
And I think this is where we've got to end today. We've got to celebrate a holy God who's relentless in his grace toward me. Guilt sucks the life out of our soul, Lucative says, but grace restores our soul. And it's not until I see God high and lifted up that I'm able to appreciate, fully rejoice, and celebrate in his relentless grace toward me and Jesus. You see, if I don't have a holy God, if I don't see a holy God, then grace will never be amazing. But God is bigger than you think. That's why Paul said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. There's nothing I am, nothing I have that is apart from his good grace to me, his relentless, extravagant grace. Grace will only be amazing if I understand God and all his holiness. And that's what pushes and inspires me, he says, to do what I do in my life. It's his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them that was not I, but the grace of God that's with me. It's the grace of God that relentlessly pursues me, works in me and through me. And he's waiting for some of you to run into that grace that he is relentlessly, extravagantly pursuing you with. That's why he says this, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say it, rejoice. Rejoice in the God who's bigger than you thought. Rejoice in the God who's nearer than you realize. Rejoice in the God who's working right now, the good God who's working in you, even though you don't feel good about it. Rejoice in the holy God, righteous God, pure God, cannot even exist in the presence of sin, God, who's relentlessly pursuing you with an extravagant, amazing grace that sent Jesus to the cross for you. And when you rejoice in the Lord, then the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Why? Because the God of peace that you're rejoicing in will be with you. God, I'm praying that for us. Some of us have too small a view of God. And some of my friends watching this have never run into your grace and your mercy. And so I'm praying right now in this moment, and that might be you, if you've never said yes to God's grace found in Christ, that you'd say, God, I believe you're a holy God. And I believe you love me more than I even understood. And today, I recognize I'm a sinner. I'm done compounding my guilt. I'm done covering my guilt. I want to cast my guilt on Jesus, the only one who can take it away and give me forgiveness and make me part of your family. Today I'm saying yes to him as Savior and Lord of my life. For some of you, you've said yes to Jesus and you keep picking that guilt up or somehow God's gotten small in your life or maybe you forgot he was right in the boat with you or maybe it doesn't feel good right now. Would you just say, God, do whatever you need to do so I can celebrate that you're a big God and I resign control. Or God, help me to realize you're a near God and that you really care about this storm I'm going through. And help me to see that, not simply the storm. Or God, help me to embrace and recognize you're good and you're at work right now, even though it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel like anything's happening. It feels like a big mess to accomplish your purposes. And God, I pray that when that happens, you'd help us to celebrate you always, rejoice in you, so that our gentleness would be evident to all. Why? Because you're near. We love you. In Jesus' name and for his sake.